Well, this morning I get to open the Word, which is a privilege, and uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for speaking. Thank you that you don't leave us in the dark, but that you've given us your word. You've given us your will. You've given us direction. You've given us hope. You've given us good news. You've given us your very presence by your spirit. For all who believe that we can hear your very words by the spirit and through this strange thing called preaching of the word. And so, Lord, I ask you to open our minds, open our hearts this morning as we want, as we need to hear from you. Do this work of grace. Speak, O Lord, through the power and the name of our King Jesus. Amen. I want you to imagine that it's 1941. If you know anything about history, you know that 1941 was during World War II. And in France, Germany had moved in and was fully occupying France. And so I want you to imagine that we're in France and we're in occupied territory. All right? And all of a sudden, an airplane flies overhead and out jumps a paratrooper, British Special Forces. Just one guy. He comes down. Nobody sees him land. And then he comes into the villages and he begins to recruit people, French citizens, to do what? To form a resistance. To form a resistance against this occupying force, Nazi Germany. And so this Special ops paratrooper comes in, begins to recruit people. They have secret closed-door meetings where they're um, talking about how can we push back the enemy? How can we be part of what is going to bring freedom and liberation to our, to our land? And people step up and say, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to join this group. And they begin to form these pockets of resistance. And once a pocket of resistance is formed in one village, the, the, the paratrooper, the special ops Um, officer goes to another village and he comes in and he begins to form the same kind of pocket of resistance. Do you see what this is a picture of? It's a picture of how Jesus came down from heaven, born incarnate as a man, in the flesh, 100% man, and yet 100% God. And Jesus began to establish his kingdom. He began to form pockets of resistance in different communities here in Orangeburg, here in Columbia, here in Jerusalem. And he invites all of us to join in the resistance because we live in occupied territory, don't we? We live not only in a world that is wicked and evil, as we see that coming from outside, but also within our own hearts. I mean, we are wicked and evil, aren't we? We need the, 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 the Lord's uh, transforma- transforming power to come into our own hearts, to give us grace to change. We need little pockets of resistance within our own hearts. 
But then God, once he does that in your life, and I know he's done that in many of your lives, you know what I'm talking about. God is calling you, has called you. Some of you have been following Jesus for decades. And he's inviting all of us into this resistance. He's inviting us into this resistance. In our passage this morning, we're going to see three different ways that Jesus invites us to join the resistance. He's calling us to work for the king. He's calling us to worship the king. And he's calling us to weep with the king. He's calling us to work for the king. He's calling us to worship the king. And he's calling us to weep with the king. A little bit of background on the passage. Um, We're going to be in the gospel of Luke today, chapter 19. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. Luke 19 beginning at verse 28, but a little bit of background. Jesus has been slowly moving through the Gospel of Luke toward where? Anybody know? Where's he going? It's okay. You have to talk back because it's just how I I preach. Where's he going? Jerusalem, right? He's going to Jerusalem, and there's a dark cloud over Jerusalem because he knows that he's going toward the cross, He knows he's going toward rejection, but he's coming through Jericho. When he's in Jericho, he meets a blind beggar. And as Jesus does, he ministers grace to this blind beggar who doesn't deserve it. Like like none of us deserve it. And the blind beggar can see. And then he's going into Jericho and he sees a wee little man up in a tree. What's his name? Zacchaeus. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus. Come down, for I'm going to your house today. And so Jesus is, is, is moving through from village to village, and he's, he's calling people out of darkness, out of um, injustice, into righteousness. He's saying, I'm going to be your king. What kind of kingdom would it be? Well, he, he begins to teach as he's on this journey, and he teaches that The people who are in the know, the people who ought to know better, are the very ones that are going to reject him. The people like us, frankly. The people like us who who come to church on Sunday. They're the ones that Jesus says are going to reject his kingdom. Not only that, they're going to reject him as king. And so we turn to Luke 19, beginning at... Verse 28. This is God's word. When Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount, which is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. We're going to stop there. So Jesus is traveling toward Jerusalem, and he's almost there. He's two or three miles away from Jerusalem at this point, which is where Bethany was, right over to the east of Jerusalem, 
East is going to be which way to you? This way, right? Um, He's to the east of Jerusalem, about two to three miles, and there's a hill that's called the Mount of Olives, but it's more of a hill. Okay, It's not really a mountain. Um, but there's this hill called the Mount of Olives, and on the other side is Bethany and Bethphage, these tiny villages. Well, Jesus knew people in Bethany. Does anybody know who, was in, who lived in Bethany? Lazarus, right. Lazarus and his Mary and Martha lived in Bethany. So Jesus had connections already in this small village, and he sent two disciples. We don't know who they are. I'm thinking they were just kind of no-name disciples. Because later in the story, he's going to send Peter and John into Jerusalem. But here he just sends two disciples. It doesn't say who they are, and I think that's important. He sends them to find a cult. And it seems like Jesus either has set this up in advance, like he knows that there's going to be a cult, or in his divine nature... He knows there's going to be a cult, right? Either way, either he set it up in his human nature, you know, just planning ahead because he knew where he was going. He knew he was going to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to ride into a cult that had never been ridden into Jerusalem as the king. He's making a self-conscious move. Jesus knows what he's doing. It's been predetermined. And it's been predetermined so well that there's actually prophecy about this. In Zechariah chapter 9, this is a a prophet, one who speaks the words of God from the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this is part of that prophecy, and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a coal, the foal of a donkey. The king is coming on a donkey. And Jesus, in fulfilling this prophecy, knows exactly what he's doing. He's sitting on an animal that has never been sat upon. It's it's, it's untrained. And Jesus, the king of the universe, has no problem training an untrained colt because of his power. This animal that's reserved and saved and unspoiled for the king. Jesus says, go into the village. And so he sent two of his disciples to go and to do his will as he has already laid it out. Isn't that what Jesus calls us to do? To go and do his will that he's already laid out for us to do. It's already been predetermined what God wants you to do. So we have the privilege of going and walking in the plan, working for the king. We don't have to figure it out. We just walk in his will and what he's already determined for us to do. And it's not some grand secret, but he tells us. Just like he told these disciples, look, someone's going to say, What's up? Why are you messing with my donkey? And you're going to say, it's okay. The Lord has need of it. Right? He knows. He tells them what's happening. And brothers and sisters, Jesus has told us his will. In his word, he's given us direction. He's given us his, his guidance. He's given us what, everything we need to know for life. Everything we need to know for godliness. He's given it to us in his word. Jesus sends them not alone, but he sends them by two. And this is something important for us as we seek, and it's amazing, we had two 
missionaries up here, right? Two. Why? Because God sends us out not as rugged individuals to conquer the world, but as partners. He sends us out as partners to do His work. You don't have to do it alone. God has surrounded you with people. I mean, look around. Seriously, look around. God has sent you people in this church to partner with you in doing the work of the King. And Jesus doesn't send them with swords loud crashing, as the hymn says. But He sends them to do what? To look for... What's He going to look for, kids? A a donkey. right? He's going to look for a donkey. They are going to look for a donkey. And so God's kingdom work is often very mundane. It's not attractive. It's not something you can put on a t-shirt, you know. <laughs> I got the t-shirt, looked for a donkey, found it. I mean, no one's going to come to church for that kind of ministry, right? But isn't that what Jesus calls his disciples to do? Mundane, boring donkey-finding kinds of things. So Jesus calls you, go into the village. Go into Columbia. Go into your neighborhood. Go into your work. Love your neighbor. Serve people. Don't be served. Don't seek to be served. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you believe that, if you've received that, then He calls you to go into the village to do mundane, boring things like parenting and doing your job and studying in school and loving your neighbors, speaking the truth in love. Mundane things, but things that are a a vital part of this resistance that Jesus is doing and establishing in this world, the king, His kingdom. As they go into the village, they're supposed to say when confronted, the Lord has need of it. So let me ask you, what things in your life does the Lord have need of? What things in your life does the Lord have need of? What is God asking you to give in service to the resistance against sin and death and the powers of darkness. You know, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, this is a battle that we cannot fight apart from God's Holy Spirit empowering and equipping us and training us in His will and in His righteousness. Recently, I realized that I was getting angry on Facebook. I don't even want to tell you this story because it's just embarrassing. But I found myself last week just seething over things I was seeing on Facebook. Spending an inordinate amount of time worrying and stressing and 
thinking about the things I was seeing on Facebook. Could anybody relate to this? I know at least one or two of you. And so God gave me the idea, or maybe I came up with it in my own strength. I don't know. But I decided to quit Facebook for three weeks. Just to quit for three weeks. And some of you have done this. Purge yourself of the evil, right? <laughs> and so I did it. And I'm, I'm, I'm in it. So I'm only a week in. And I decided that every time I thought to look at Facebook, that I would pray. And, you know, because, hey, you know, that's actually how God brings his kingdom, is through prayer, right? Not through Facebook. And it's been really incredible, actually, this week. To, to every time I think, look at Facebook, I think, no, pray. And um, it's only going to be three weeks, because I'm not going to give it up forever. But, <laughs> man, what does the Lord have need of? Uh, can we devote ourselves to prayer? Can we devote our finances to the Lord's work? Can we devote our families to his will and to his plan? Can we devote our free time to do his will? Only by his grace can we do those things. The Lord has need of it as we seek to work for the king. And then the king calls us not only to work but to worship. Let's pick back up in verse 35. And they brought it. What is it? The donkey, right? How many times can you say donkey in a sermon? We'll find out. I could use a different word. Thought about it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was, as he was drawing near, already on his way down the Mount of Olives, remember, it's a hill, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is he... Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Man, isn't that good? If these were silent, Pharisees, even the stones would cry out. See, Jesus' disciples, they had been following him for a while. You've got to understand, the people who were standing on the stage worshiping Jesus are not new to the scene. They, they've been following Jesus. They're his disciples. They know what he's up to. He's been telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm establishing my kingdom. Come with me. Join in the resistance. And they understood what was happening. The Messiah, the promised one, had come. The promised one had come and they were going to devote themselves to worshiping and honoring Him and praising Him. And to do it not secretly, but publicly. To worship Him. They had seen the mighty works that He had done. They had seen Him give grace to the, 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 the outcasts of society. They had seen Him give sight to the blind. They had seen Him lift up the broken and give them grace. He had seen, they had seen the tax collector... Be given a new lease on life. They had seen the mighty works of the Messiah and now they were worshiping Him. 
They were laying down their cloaks on the ground. Why would you do that? It is just to show their submission and their obedience and their honor of this, their king. They cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were calling him king, which in that day was a crime, right? Because there's only one king, Caesar. This is what ends up being part of the prosecution against Jesus a few days later. But the Pharisees didn't like it. They did not recognize him as the Messiah. They recognized him as a troublemaker. They recognized him as someone who's taking the attention away from where it belongs on God. No, not on God. On the Pharisees, right? On the religious leaders, the ones with the t-shirts. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Jesus, responding to this rebuke, says, if they don't worship me, the very stones will cry out. And I believe that as the scripture says, Jesus is cresting the hill of the Mount of Olives. And do you know why it's called the Mount of Olives? They had olive trees there, right? Um, it's not a trick question. So he's cresting the Mount of Olives. And as he gets over the top of the Mount of Olives, he can see the Kidron Valley before him. And across the Kidron Valley, he sees the holy city. He sees Jerusalem rising up with its mighty walls and the temple rising up out of the center. And I believe, that it doesn't say it, but I believe at this point he's pointing at the, at the, the stones of the city of Jerusalem. And he says, if they, if, they, if they don't worship the stones that make up the city, the stones that make up this temple where God meets with his people, they will cry out. Not just the rocks on the ground, but the stones of the place where God meets with His people. The place where the atonement takes place. The place where the blood of lambs and goats and bulls covers over all our sin. And points forward to the Lamb of God who is coming. He says, these stones will cry out. People rejoice and praise God. When we, when we consider, and y'all, we have to take time to do this. When we consider the good news of Jesus and what it means to us, what it means for us, when we remember the gospel, when we remember that there is nothing that we can do to please God apart from the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, His life and His death, and His resurrection, when we remember that, we should respond to it in joyful praise and rejoicing. People were made for worship. There's something going on right now called March Madness. Y'all are getting the hang of this responding thing. That's good. March Madness. There's a reason it's called March Madness, right? Because people are crazy about worshiping things. We worship things. We're created for it, created to worship God. And every other worship should fall in line with the worship of the one, true king. And so we shouldn't be quiet, but we should worship. And it does our hearts good to gather 
every week together and to worship God here publicly, to do it as families. Have you ever thought about worshiping as a family? Maybe you're not musically inclined, but you can read the scripture a little bit and maybe sing together, try it, worship privately. God wants our whole lives to be devoted to rejoicing and praising him for who he is and what he's doing, calling us into this resistance by worshiping. Well, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, rebuke your disciples. They are worshiping you as if you were God. Some will try to silence your praise. I mean, man, the example of the church in Egypt? Hello. Some will try to silence your praise. And, 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 and it may not be with uh, AK-47s, right? But it may be with subtle pressure at work, or it may be with our desire to be well thought of, to not ruffle any feathers. What is it that silences your praise? I'm going to mention two things. These are kind of internal things that silence our praise. One is pride. You know, if you feel like you're a good person, if you feel like you, know, you, you pretty much have everything you need, it's great to come to church and feel good about you know, a good message and good music and seeing people we like. But, but at the core, you, you really feel like you're a good person, especially when you compare yourself to others. You think, man, I'm pretty good. Well, that pride, the Bible calls it pride. I have it. You have it. That pride silences our praise. Because the idea of praising God is, is, is rooted in the, in, the, in the very confession that I don't have it together. I don't have it together. I am a, a de- desperate sinner in need of forgiveness and grace. I'm worse than the tax collector. How many of us really believe that? No, our pride silences our worship. Jesus says, if these are silent, the very stones will cry out. Another thing that silences our praise is our, is our shame. Because we know we don't have it together. We know we will never be as good as that other person I see sitting across the church. I mean, I know I will, my family, my children will never behave like that family's children behave. <laughs> never. And so we feel shame Because we're not good. And it silences our praise because we can barely we can barely stand in God's presence. So whether it's pride or shame, we need to be restored to the reality of God's grace. That we don't come to Him based on our performance. But how good I am as a parent. Or how good I am at my job. Or how good I am as a friend. We come based on the performance of Jesus. Which is given to us as a free gift. And so that good news. That it's not about you if you feel shamed. It's not about you if you feel some pride. It's about Jesus. What he's done. He's the one who's come from heaven. And is establishing the resistance. So know Jesus. And don't be ashamed of what he's doing in your life. 
receive and rest in Him. And allow yourself to respond in worship. So we are called to do His work. We're called to worship. As part of this resistance and last, to weep. We're called to weep with Jesus. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near, so imagine he's coming over Mount of Olives, coming down the hill now. When he drew near and saw the city, he could really, he could really see the city now. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus looks upon Jerusalem The city of peace, that's what Jerusalem means. And he says, oh, that you knew what would make for peace. Jesus comes over the crest of the Mount of Olives and he can see Jerusalem, he can see the temple, and he can see that the people are going to reject the true king. They're not going to accept him. They're not going to see what God is doing. And he weeps over the city. Jesus is not the first king to weep over Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 15. King David, the the man after God's own heart, King David has a son named Absalom. And Absalom forms a conspiracy against David. And over time, the hearts of the people turn away from following the true king, David, to following this false imposter, Absalom and At some point, David realizes that it's too late, that he's going to have to leave Jerusalem. And so listen to this from 2 Samuel 15, verse 30. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. He's going the opposite direction. Jesus is coming into town. David's going out of town. Weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. O Jerusalem, the city that rejects the king, has always rejected the king. Uh, We've all rejected the king. We don't know the things that would make for peace. We don't follow the things that would truly make for peace. Have you ever seen a loved one on a destructive path? Maybe a child or a good friend, and you see them making decision after decision that is just destroying them. It's, it's tearing, them, tearing them down. And you, and you say to them, look, you've got to stop what you're doing, right? You, you want to intervene. You want to see it. But they, but they just keep charging ahead like nothing is going to be a problem. And what do you do? You weep. You weep over them. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is weeping. 
And he, and he sees into the future some 40 years, and he sees that the day will come when your enemies, the Romans, will set up a barricade. The historian Josephus writes about how this happened in A.D. 70. Some of you know the history. In A.D. 70, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, just as Jesus predicts. They put rings of embankments around the city, and they, and they starved Jerusalem to the point that they had to give up. They killed thousands and thousands of people and the ones who were inside the city walls who were starving. Josephus, the historian, writes that fathers became so desperate that they would put their own wives and children to death within the walls of Jerusalem just to spare them the pain that they were undergoing. God's judgment would come The temple would be torn down. Not one stone would be left upon another, just as Jesus predicted. Because the people didn't recognize the king when he came. Didn't recognize the king when he came. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And friends, when we think about the ways that we've rejected the king from whatever area of our life, we've said, okay, great, you can have this part of my life, God, but not this part. We reject him from being king over our lives. That should drive us to mourn. It should drive us to weeping, weeping our own wickedness, our own sin, to weep over it. Not only the the things that we see in our own lives, but the things that we see in our community. When we see... Corruption, when we see failure, when we see broken families, when we see greedy businesses, when we see abuse, when we see neglect, when we see racism, when we see homelessness, when we see murder, when we see disobedience to parents, when we see sexual addiction, when we see Shopping to fill a void. When we see overeating. When we see an obsession with eating right. We should weep over these things that draw us away from God. Mourn, weep over these things. Jesus says to us, Would that you had known what makes for peace. Would that you had known what makes for peace. There's a story about a mountain climber, and you've probably heard this story before, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. I think it illustrates a point. The story is about a mountain climber who was an amateur. He was new at mountain climbing, and and as he was climbing up this ascent, suddenly he fell. And as he's falling, he's scrambling and trying to grab anything he can grab, and he finally catches hold of a scraggly bush on the side of this cliff. He breathes a sigh of relief, but then he looks down thousands of feet below to rocks and certain death. The mountain climber, clinging to this scraggly bush, knows that it's not going to hold and there's nothing else around him. And so he cries up to heaven, is there anyone there that can help? And suddenly a voice says, yes, I can help you, but you've got to trust me. Let go of the bush. He looks down. He looks back up to heaven and he says, Is there anyone else? 
Why? Because we don't want to let go of the things that we think will make for peace. We don't want to let go of being a good mom. We don't want to let go of being a good husband. We don't want to let go of making good grades. We don't want to let go of being beautiful. We don't want to let go of being an achiever at work or in school. The things that we think will make for peace. The king says, you got to trust me. I'm coming to pay it all. I'm coming to rescue you. you got to trust me. Let go. Rest and receive his grace. We're invited to join the resistance this morning. To work for the king, to do mundane, boring things, his glory. To worship the king, turn our hearts toward his gospel and his grace. And to weep with the king, to mourn our sin, to mourn the things around us that we see in need of repair. To let go the things that we think will make for peace. And trust in him alone. We pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking your truth and your grace to us. Lord, minister to our hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, that even now as some may be questioning and wondering and asking, that you would minister in their hearts. You would serve and remind them of your grace and your gospel and the the freedom with which we can join the resistance. So Lord, do that work in us and leave us not unchanged today. Lord, bless this congregation. I pray that Columbia Prez would not just be an event, but would be a people who are on mission with you. Do that work. In Jesus' name, amen.